Well, good morning. We're uh, continuing our series, Dependable God, Disposable World. You know, when I was growing up, there was a, uh, a phrase that used to be used and it described um, obsolescence and it was called planned obsolescence. And so when we got married, I got a washing machine. It was a Hoover uh, upright top loader, Hoover 7 series. And I remember after about 25 years, something went wrong with it and the serviceman comes around and he said, oh, you want to hold on to these ones? They don't make them like this anymore. And uh, that's we, we've come to understand this thing called planned obsolescence where somehow to keep our economy going because we're so consumer driven, we have to keep producing stuff uh, that doesn't last so long so that we can keep producing stuff, so that we can keep buying stuff uh, and so on. Now, I'm no economist, but that's sort of how it works, planned obsolescence. Well, this week I was reading about a thing called perceived obsolescence. And I just want to give you one example of it this morning. Some of you might have a beautiful device known as an Apple TV. I, uh, I hang it after one of these and I just happened to mention it before my birthday and my kids had been thinking about it as well and they, uh, they came good with it, which was fantastic. And you link this little device up to your television. It's a t- small little box. It's a beautiful thing. I know a lot of you are probably very familiar with it, but it's not a TV, it's, but it's called a TV, Apple TV. And uh, if you've got any other Apple device, an iPad, an iPhone, somehow, mysteriously, when this is connected to your TV wirelessly, the things that are on your phone or your iPad just somehow get up on the TV screen. It's, like, amazing. And this worked beautifully with my old TV, which is a full high-definition 32-inch Kogan TV, which doesn't say a lot for it, but um, my son tells me every time he looks at the TV, Dad, don't buy another one of those, but it's been really good for me. He says it's very small too, but I love it still, still good. Anyway, this Apple TV, beautiful unit, worked well. One day up on the screen as I'm trying to, you can get ABC shows like iView straight up there from your phone, it's just amazing. I thought, I'll watch a show. As it, it comes up and puts up a message, you need to upgrade the software. Oh, that's good. I want to be up to date. So I go ahead and wirelessly it upgrades the software on my Apple TV. Ever since after that, I get this message. Every time I pl- try to play any video content, it says this content requires HDCP for playback. Either your HDMI, HDMI cable isn't properly connected or your HDMI connection doesn't support HDCP. Now, do you know what that means? It's serious, I tell you. HDP stands for High Bandwidth Digital Content Protection. And it's actually like a a thing that they've invented to stop people somehow uh, sort of grabbing what you're transmitting midstream. So it actually requires like a handshake between this and the other device. Now, what a handshake is, goodness knows. But anyway, obviously my Apple TV is no longer shaking hands with my TV. Now, what does that tell me? It tells me that my perfectly good TV, which has served me well for five, six years, full high definition, lovely picture, it's rubbish. It's no good. This $100 device doesn't work properly anymore with my TV because my TV's HDMI inputs, I've tried all that cable thing, my TV's HDMI inputs, they don't work with it. I rang Apple, spoke to a guy in America. He couldn't help me. He said, try your cables. I've got new cables. Didn't help. Anyway, then I, what you do when you have these troubles, I Googled it. I thought, I'll find the answer. So I Googled it and there's this thing that said, Apple TV HDCP fix. I thought, this is it. I'll show you the, the, the video. It was a YouTube video. 
I've, I've watched with interest. Check it out. This content requires actually... That's enough, that's enough. <laughs> now, I haven't done that to mine, but I think I'm going to have to get a new TV because my perception about my TV now is that it's actually obsolete. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not as if it was planned obsolescence, but somehow it's no good anymore. And Apple is the classic for this, isn't it? Your iPhone 3 is no good because now there's an iPhone 4 and an iPhone 5 and there was a 5C, but now there's a 5S and a 5S even comes in gold. I mean, before they were just black and silver, but now they come in gold. You want one, don't you? (laughs) So the other ones which work perfectly, they're just no good anymore. And you know, it's easy for us in the sort of world that we live in, it's such a, a sort of throwaway world where most of us probably have got a couple of spare mobile phones that work perfectly well in our drawer. We somehow realise that when things no longer serve our purpose as we, as we hope they would, that we can you know, replace it with something that serves us better, something that's maybe more comfortable or, or more easy or more trendy or more cool. And so we get rid of the old and we bring in the new because we perceive what was old to be obsolete. And you know, it's easy in that sort of a world for that throwaway mentality uh, to permeate our values and our convictions if our values no longer seem to be serving our purposes uh, or they're causing us some hardship or they're holding us back in some way, we can be tempted to just throw them away, get some new ones. And the Emperor's Club is just a, a classic example of a man who, for whatever it cost, he disposed of all his values to the point that he had none at the end uh, and he was found wanting. But I wonder for you and for me, in a disposable world, how do you and I react when the path that we know to be right is challenged or is blatantly disregarded or it's perceived by those around us to be obsolete. Now, I love what Chad shared this morning. But sometimes it's really hard in those situations to be able to work out what's going on and how you actually react in a way that's true to who you are as a person and to what you believe. And I think we can react in one of three ways. We can either choose to be quiet. And you saw in the Emperor's Club how that uh, teacher initially was told to just, just be quiet under the carpet. Just let it go on. I, I know it's wrong, but don't say anything. And that's a really safe sort of a ground to be in. And I think we've probably all experienced times when things have been going on around us that we probably should have responded to, reacted to, said something about. But we've been tempted to keep it really quiet. People being bullied or victimised or just ridiculed in our workplace. There's often a person in your workplace, isn't there, who's the butt of all the jokes and everybody seems to go along with it. And you can very easily get drawn into going along with it as well. Or maybe there's dishonesty going on, uh, dodgy things happening that you're sort of expected to be a part of. Maybe you're even expected to sign some papers that are actually a part of the dodgy stuff that's going on. And the threat is that if you don't go along with it, then your, your job and your livelihood is at stake. Maybe it's as simple as whether we cheat on exams or assignments. There's so much 
potential uh, in our world to cheat, isn't there? Um, and the internet seems to have the answer to every question. So if you want to cheat in, uh, in, in that sort of way, it's easy to do it. Maybe in a school sense, you see bullying in the schoolyard and you just, you're tempted to just ignore it or even to be part of it. You know, somebody uh, in the early 1900s said that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And I think for many of us, there's a really strong temptation just to play it cool and, and keep quiet and don't rock the boat. Um, and I think we need to examine ourselves if, that, if that's our, our most common reaction. I know it's often my most common reaction. The other way we can respond is we can go with the flow. And, uh, you know, whatever the sort of the people and the culture around us are doing, we sort of just go down that track. And often when we talk about uh, being true to ourselves, and we're talking about true this morning, and we're going to look at a person in the Bible who is true, but often when we talk about being true to ourselves, it's almost a euphemism for doing what I want to please me um, because I'm the most important person and provided I don't do things that hurt someone else, I'll do what pleases me uh, as long as I like. We go, go with the flow. There's that temptation. It's a hard thing to swim upstream against the tide. And when the tide of our culture is going a certain way, for us to take a stand against it is not an easy thing. But then there are people who stand firm. They take a stand for their principles. Chad and his friends taking a stand. That teacher at the end of the, end of the DV taking a, DVD taking a stand, saying what he really believed, saying that there were some principles and values in your life that are really, really important. And if, if you just let them all slide, you end up with nothing. How telling when that little guy's son comes out of the room and he realises what a, a, an example, what a, a, a failure he's been in front of his child. I remember an uncle, probably a similar situation to um, Chad's, who worked for, he, he worked for himself as a subcontractor and uh, he was quite a bit older than me and as growing up as a, probably a teenager, I probably observed this and was really impressed by it. He worked for an oil company delivering drums and I used to go out with him on his truck. It was the most dangerous thing, pulling these 44-gallon drums off a truck onto a couple of tyres and then wheeling them to wherever you took them. I don't think they'd allow it today. But uh, if you wanted to kill yourself, it was the sort of job. But he was good at it and uh, it was a steady job and, and, and earned good money. He had his own truck. But uh, the company that he worked for, uh, he, was, he wasn't a member of the union. He'd seen things that happened and the, the tactics that the union used and he didn't like it. But then they, they made a condition of his job that he had to join the union and he just couldn't live with that. And so here's a guy, similar situation to Chad, with family and, and uh, uh, mortgage and all that, who gets out of that, sells his truck, decides he needs to do something else because he couldn't uh, go along with joining the union because he, he, he knew what, uh, what it stood for. You know, to take a stand is hard, but I think uh, when we look at our, our society, often people applaud people who are prepared to take a stand. So it's not all bad. Just taking a stand for what you know to be right is actually applauded often by people around us. I think of uh, Tim Costello often as a, a, a spokesperson against uh, gambling. And for someone who's, who's taken a, a stand which has been pretty difficult because there's some, some pretty uh, wealthy people who are, are wanting that gambling and casino world to just grow and prosper. And here's someone who says, hey, this is not good. This is causing damage to families. This is destructive. And keeps making a stand publicly against it. One of the... the Struggles in our, our culture is um, just out of control, binge drinking uh, with young adults. And we see it every Friday and Saturday night 
or early on Saturday morning and Sunday morning and we would uh, hate to be employed in an emergency department in one of our hospitals for what we see on those mornings. People who have been punched, king hit, uh, doing nothing wrong. There's a, a guy in Sydney who's been in the news quite uh, regularly, Thomas Kelly, who's 19 years old. He was king hit from the back, just going about his own business on a, a Saturday night in Sydney. His father grieved over that for four or five months and then he established what they call the Thomas Kelly uh, Youth Foundation. He's taking a stand because he sees that uh, the, the things that are happening in uh, our city streets fuelled by excess consumption of alcohol, it shouldn't be happening. We need to do something about it. We need to take a stand. You know, however we choose to react, whether we choose to keep quiet or go with the flow or stand form, I think most of us are acutely aware that there's amazing pressure on us to conform, uh, to keep quiet about our personal values. And we're also aware of that um, propensity of in, our, in ourselves to actually shift our values when we're put under pressure, uh, depending on who we're with at the time and uh, what the circumstances are. And we're also aware of the effort and the personal cost that accompanies standing firm. There's often a, a price to pay when we choose to, to stand firm for what we believe. Over the last uh, couple of Thursday nights, and some of you might have, who are into footy might have seen these, but I got home, get home reasonably late on a Thursday night, but at 10.30 on Channel 9, they've had these shows called The Final Story, and they're like documentaries on some of the, the, the great grand finals in the uh, VFL, AFL history. There was the 1966 grand final between Collingwood and St Kilda, that St Kilda won by one point, and I'm old enough to remember that. But there was also, last week, there was the 1989 grand final between Hawthorne and Geelong. And the, the beauty of these shows, I think I have to go for about an hour, was just the raw emotion of these guys who were part of it remembering back. And uh, they were, many of them were in tears as they remembered the day and the emotion of that day. And in two of these that I watched, those, both of those, uh, Alan Jeans had been the coach of one of the teams and he's legendary. And often, um, since he's died now, I think the emotion is much stronger for, for all that Alan Jeans meant to these footballers. But they were recounting his speech in the half-time in the 1989 Grand Final and he told some silly little story like, if, you get, if I went down to the shop and there was a pair of shoes there and they were five bucks, oh, there was another pair for three bucks. He says, I went in there and I bought the pair for three bucks and I got home and they didn't last very long. I should have paid the price. I should have bet the pair that cost five bucks. You know, you guys, you've got to pay the price. If you want to witness greatness today, you've got to pay the price. You know, that sort of speech. You're going to just see Alan Jeans doing that. But he's making the point that we can take the cheap, easy way out, but ultimately it doesn't get us uh, the result that we want to get. But if we're prepared to pay the price, sometimes uh, we're going to get what we deserve uh, for taking a stand. In the Old Testament story, we have this story of Daniel and it's a magnificent story and I'm sure it's probably familiar to a lot of you. Daniel was like an elite young man in, the, um, in Judah, in Israel and Judah had been uh, invaded by the Babylonians and they took some people off to exile early and Daniel was one of those who was taken off to exile. And he was taken off because he was specially selected as a guy who uh, was good looking, number one. I imagine physically fit. 
uh, intelligent, wise, great understanding, all of those things. And he and quite a number of other young men were selected on that basis. And they, they're taken away to Babylon and they're taken there to learn the language and the culture and the ways of the Babylonians. So here are these young boys uh, grown up in a culture with all the values of that culture and they're taken away to this pagan culture and they're expected to uh, live and uh, learn the ways of that culture. Now these guys are, are quite amazing and after three years and after standing up for their principles a number of times, uh, they graduate from what was like an internship in the, uh, the court of King Nebuchadnezzar and having graduated, they are given responsible roles in the kingdom. In the midst of all of that, they managed to remain faithful to the God of Israel who they believed was the one true God. And after three years and when they're brought into the service of the king, it says in the book of Daniel that they're found to be ten times better. Now, I don't know how they judge ten times, but ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters uh, and what have you that were serving the king at the time. These lads were something special. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a, an up and down sort of reign, but he, he was replaced by his son Belshazzar. And Belshazzar didn't learn anything about uh, ruling from, his, from the mistakes of his father and he made all the same mistakes and the writing was on the wall for him and literally and he was deposed and then the Medes and the Persians took over from the Babylonians and you think in the midst of all of this here's Daniel all through all of these reigns maintaining a highly responsible position and being greatly respected because he was in touch with his God and because he lived a life of integrity among the people and so here come the Medes and the Persians and Darius the Mede is the king. And Daniel very quickly rises to a position of high authority, uh, almost the highest position after the king in the land. Now that was a great thing and he's respected for his integrity and they can't find any fault with him. But there are others, and this often happens when people rise to the top, there are others around him who just can't stand the fact that he's elevated and respected and responsible and rewarded for the way he's performed. And so these other competitors, if you like, they, they try to find a way to uh, discredit Daniel. Just like Chad's friends, you like, not friends, tried to discredit him and his friends. They try to find a way to discredit him. And it says in the Bible that they couldn't find a way uh, to discredit him because he was upright and true in everything he did. And so, rather than find a way that's true, they think to themselves, there is one thing that we can get him on. He's absolutely true and faithful to his God. His God seems really important to him. And so they go to Darius and they have this plan and they say to Darius these words, they say, Darius, give orders that for the next 30 days any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, Your Majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. They're up to trickery, aren't they? They know that uh, Daniel is going to read that and he's going to say, well, I'm not going to compromise on the God that I serve. I'm going to keep bowing down to him. And we know the story. Daniel, uh, next page, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open towards Jerusalem and he prayed three times a day 
just as he's always done, giving thanks to God. Now, if it was you or me, and we'd read that edict, we might choose to compromise. We might close the windows, maybe. Um, we might do it, continue to do it, but do it on the quiet. Daniel does it in the very public way that he'd always done it, and he continues to pray. So at last the king has no choice. He has to give orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. You can imagine Darius, who respected Daniel greatly, he realises he's been tricked, but the law of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be changed. And his other uh, officials say, well, that's the, that's the situation. You can't change the law. And the king has to agree that, yes, I have signed this and I've sealed it and I can't change it. And so he gives orders reluctantly for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And as he's going, he says to Daniel, may your God who you serve so faithfully, rescue you. And we read in the Bible that Darius had a very uncomfortable night. It doesn't seem to be about whether Daniel had an uncomfortable night. I reckon he might have too. But Darius couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. He's just toey about what's happening to Daniel. But he somehow must have had a a sense that Daniel was going to be all right. So first thing in the morning, he gets down to that lion's den and he calls out and he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? I don't know what he's expecting to hear. But Daniel answered, long live the king. What a relief that must have been to Darius. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me. For I've been found innocent in his sight and I've not wronged you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and he ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him for he had trusted in his God. Wow, what a story. God saved Daniel. Daniel remained valued and respected And Darius ultimately decrees that Daniel's God is the God who should be revered. The king Darius sent this message to the people, I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he'll endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now we read a story like this and we often think, well, if we do the right thing and we stand up, we're going to prosper. It's all going to work out good for us. We can be thrown in dens of lions and we get out okay. It doesn't always happen, does it? You know, earlier in the book of Daniel, there are three blokes and they get thrown into a fiery furnace. Similar sort of story in chapter 3. This is in chapter 6. They have this attitude. They get saved too, remarkably, but they have this attitude where they say to God, to the people who are... are, um, doing it to them, they say, whether our God saves us or not, we're not going to turn away from trusting him, whether he saves us or not. And so we shouldn't expect that if we do the right thing, everything will always go well for us. It may not. But we still need to stand up for our principles, our values, our convictions. Daniel was true to himself and he was true to his God and God rewarded him for it because he never compromised on what he believed. And all through it, Daniel is giving God the credit. He's saying, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. And he's the one who I follow. He's the one who actually gives me answers when you ask me questions about your dreams and all that sort of stuff. There is a God in heaven. Well, how do we relate to a story like Daniel? It's a powerful story for our time, isn't it? Can you imagine a world without some of the things that make it tick well? Can you imagine a world without, say, faithfulness? Or loyalty. Imagine a world like that. I had this modelled to me beautifully as I was growing up. I had uh, uh, two great sets of grandparents. And on my dad's side, my grandmother, who was a real goer, 
I remember her as a real goer. She used to do everything for everyone and drive the car everywhere and take everywhere. She started having these turns and uh, losing bits of time and then um, ultimately she ended up uh, in a nursing home probably quite early and probably for 15, maybe 20 years she was uh, being cared for. And my grandfather, who had made a promise to her to love and cherish her till death do them part, he visited her every day, fed her a lunch. And for me as a kid growing up, for, for somebody, I'd go and see her and she didn't recognise me and by the end she didn't recognise him either. But he'd chosen to be faithful, to be loyal, to be loving uh, to the one that he'd committed his life to. That spoke volumes to me as I was growing up. Can you imagine a world without truth or without trust? When you have somebody who betrays your trust, it takes you a long while, doesn't it, to uh, sort of get in a position where you can feel you can actually trust them again. Some of you might have been watching on TV at the moment, Mr Selfridge. And uh, Mr Selfridge was a interesting sort of a man, but there's a story, a true story, about a man named uh, Gibbo, and he used to work as a clerk at Selfridges. And the story's told that one day the, the phone rings and Gibbo answers the phone. And uh, the person on the phone wants to speak to Mr Selfridge. So Gibbo holds the phone up like this and he says, Gordon, phone for you. And Gordon says, tell him I'm not here. And, and Gibbo says, you tell him. And uh, Gordon Selfridge, you can imagine, was irate. And the, the end of the conversation was Gibbo says to Gordon Selfridge, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you. And I'll never do that. And it turned out that this guy Gibbo became one of the very trusted employees in Selfridge's because he'd chosen to take a stand and he was respected for it. So if they ever wanted to, anything done by someone who they could trust, Gibbo was the one who got the job. So it's hard to imagine a world without faithfulness and loyalty and trust and truth. But we see the effects of those things being missing many times. Imagine a world where everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Imagine a world where ethics and morals were, were just set by the the lowest common denominator in our, in our culture. Imagine a world without any moral compass. Imagine a, a world where companies and individuals didn't seem to have any moral fibre. See, in a world where living our dreams and fulfilling our own desires are sold to us as the, the, the keys to being happy, it's really easy to lose sight of the things that give that true value to our lives, like these things, faithfulness and loyalty and integrity and perseverance. Deep down, I think we recognise that these are the things that really count. These are the things that give value to our lives. These are the things that provide us with a genuine sense of well-being. God applauds those who remain true to themselves and true to him. There was a song I used to love that Daniel clearly lived out and it said this, I'll be prepared, I'll be content, if you like, to serve an audience of one. It's only his approval counts when all is said and done. And in our world we're so influenced by the approval or the desire for the approval of everybody else around us uh, but ultimately it's only God's approval that counts when all is said and done. And God proved himself to Daniel to be a dependable God a God who never changes, who always remains faithful. 
The news says we're going to sing a a closing song to us. It's a great song. It it reflects on some of these ideas about whether we uh, keep quiet or compromise. It's a song called Brave. But as we close today, I just want you to think about four things. And uh, I've got them up on the screen. And these are just four challenges for you that I'd like you to just think about as we close. I wonder for you maybe today as you've just listened in, you realise that maybe there's an area in your life where you have been drifting where you had just been going along, just going with the flow and you see the picture there, it's really difficult, isn't it, to be that yellow fish swimming upstream against the tide. But you know in your heart that that's the way you should be and that's the way your life needs to be and there's maybe an area that God's touched your heart about today that, hey, I need to do something about that. I wonder if you'd just pray and ask God to give you that ability to stop the drift. Stop the drift in whatever area it might be that you're thinking about today. Then the second thing there is uh, speak up. Maybe there's something that you've been challenged about that you've been keeping quiet about that you know is wrong and you need to say something about. It might be hard. You might want somebody to to actually pray with you after today just to to get the strength and the courage to do that. Some of these things you need to be brave to do. Third thing I've got there is explore Jesus. You might say to me, you're talking about a moral compass and uh, I sort of know what you mean but I really don't know where I stand. You know, if you need a firm place to stand, uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And he says, come to me. He says, learn from me. He's like a rock that we can build on. He gives our lives a firm foundation. He's not like shifting sand. The sands of our culture are shifting all over the place, but Jesus says, follow me. There's an old hymn that says, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I wonder if that's something that you've realised or maybe come to realise that you need to actually explore Jesus, find out who is this man Jesus and what does he have to say to my life. If that's something that you really like to do, there's opportunities for you to do that in a, in a small group setting at New Community. I'd love to, to talk to you about that today. And then the final picture was the baptisms that Chris mentioned on November the 17th. This is an opportunity to speak up, to actually go public, to say, Jesus is central in my life. He's the one I want to follow. He's the one I want to live for. And uh, that's something that I've done and I want to demonstrate it by going public, by going into the water in front of everybody and saying, I want to live for Jesus. I've accepted him into my life and I want to follow him every day. There's going to be some people up the front who will pray with you after today. But I just want to challenge you with this final verse that's been our verse of the month. Taste and see that God is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him.